0: Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm David Rowe. On today's episode, Bart Hoggeveen speaks to the European Union's Senior Envoy for Digital to the United States, Gerard de Graaf. They talk about the EU's approach to the regulation of artificial intelligence and how it differs from other nations' approaches. They also discuss the situations in which the use of AI should be limited or prohibited and Australia's progress in its own efforts to regulate AI.
1: Jeroen, thanks so much for joining us on the SP podcast. We're going to talk about AI, artificial intelligence, and obviously, big in the news last two weeks was the summit hosted by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in the UK, the AI Safety Summit. What can you tell us about that summit from from an EU perspective? What were the, the positions that the EU went into that summit, and, and what what are your takes on the outcomes?
2: Well, there's been a a lot of activity internationally over the last, say, six months. Of course, we've had the OECD, the G7, and we've had the UK-hosted AI Safety Summit. And and from a an EU perspective, we think that's very good because we need to have these international conversations about like where AI is going. Do we share a problem analysis? Do we see the benefits? Do we see the risks in much the same light? And so, in talking more specifically about the summit in London or, or, or near London at Bletchley park, we think it was a positive outcome. I think to, to get all of these countries around the table to agree on a, on a joint declaration that sets, uh, I think, a direction for, for future work. I think that's something that is indispensable to as a, as almost like a a, a canvas for all of us to kind of draw inspiration from as we are devising and developing our own responses that of course are influenced by our own political traditions, our own kind of political realities and, and context, but so that we do so in a way that is kind of informed by a wider international consensus. So I think that's what like the G7, Hiroshima process and and the Bletchley Park Declaration and the OECD principles, That that's the kind of framework that that is offered by those kind of events and processes so on balance very positive also the fact that like china was involved in in the discussions and and, and signed the the declaration i think is uh, is definitely a a positive development you refer to kind of some of these processes that have been ongoing already for a
1: while, preceding the, the UK initiative, which is the Hiroshima G7 process. I think there is the GPA, the Global Partnership on AI. There is the OECD process. There is the UNESCO process. So we've seen all these platforms, these forums coming out with, with high-level statements of principles about what governments should adhere to or should promote, but also what industries should promote. But I think one of the key questions is how, how does that translate into action or self-regulation by industry or get governments kicking in regulation or or legislation where does the eu ai act which will come to conclusion hopefully by the end of the year is, is that kind of the eu's platform to kind of translate big
2: principles into concrete steps i think definitely it's a very important component of like the eu's approach of course we have already rules and regulations in place in the european union that are very relevant in the context of AI, we have data protection, we have copyright, we have cybersecurity rules in, in place. We have a lot of rules in specific areas like financial services or in the medical field. So that we have a baseline and we need, of course, to ensure that these rules that were kind of developed and adopted at a time when AI wasn't pervasive, that they are still fit for purpose. But, but the EU definitely believes that we need to go further EU has made a proposal for legislation and that is currently negotiated between our, our co-legislators, the EU AI Act. And uh, I mean, referring to the, the discussions that are taking place internationally, the I think the approach is very consistent with the international kind of framework that has emerged from all of these these efforts. I mean, you see issues around risk-based approach. I mean, the European Union is following a risk-based approach. You see very much around principles like human-centric uh, to make sure that the technology works for people, that people it's not kind of people have to adjust to the technology. The technology has to adjust to people, to our societies, to our fundamental rights. So I think that's a good backdrop to, to what the European Union is doing. We are following a product safety approach in the European Union because a lot of the AI also is integrated into, into products. I mean, medical devices are increasingly AI devices. I mean, electronics are increasingly AI. I mean, your camera is AI-driven. I mean, toys even that, that our children play with uh, have a lot of AI already in them and will be more in the future. And then there's also self-standing AI. So th- the way we will regulate AI is the way that the European Union has regulated product safety for the last 30 years. 40 years. So in the EU AI Act, we identify the risks There's categories of risk. We have risks that are so high that the AI should be prohibited. And who is making those
1: judgments on on what is kind of unacceptable risk and lower degrees of risk?
2: Well, it's informed by analysis, but like in any negotiation, and it's a negotiation, of course, between elected representatives in the european union between ministers that represent the member states and members of the european parliament that represent, say the people of europe and Mm -hmm. and so at the end of the day who decides it is in democratic societies it is our parliaments and our governments that take the decision what is high risk and what should be regarded as like limited risk or even minimal risk and and which applications would we not want To have in the European Union, I mean, where we think the risk is so high that they should be prohibited. So so maybe just it helps if I give some examples. In the European Union, we wouldn't want to see AI that is used to differentiate people in terms of like social credit scoring. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't want to see AI that is using subliminal techniques to get people to take decisions that are against their own interest. Um, there is a discussion going on in the European Union to what extent biometric identification and facial recognition should be allowed uh, for law enforcement purposes in particular and to what extent maybe some of those applications should be prohibited because in the European Union we don't want to live in a surveillance society. So that, that's the kind of discussion we have about like prohibited AI And then there's a category of AI which we call high risk. And maybe I should stress here that when the EU regulates AI, we only regulate those categories of AI that where there's a risk uh, involved to people or to our society. So that's probably not more than 10% of all AI applications. So when people say, oh, you regulate AI, yeah, but we regulate only 10%, 90% of AI that we are used to using in the EU, like spell checkers or recommendations for like a player playlist on Spotify or your navigation system is, of course, not captured by the EU AI Act. When we talk about high risks, it's particular situations where if AI is used to take decisions and these decisions have a material impact on people, And there we want to know that these decisions are taken in a way that are like non-biased, non-discriminatory and fair. So, for example, if you apply for a mortgage and your bank runs an AI, you should not be denied a mortgage, which is very important because this is the kind of important decision in your life that allows you, for example, to to build your dream house or to buy… A car, yes. it should not be taken on the basis of biased data that you don't get the mortgage because you happen to live in an area where kind of there there has been some problems with repayment of mortgages or you have an ethnic background and, and therefore you are considered just for that reason to be a higher risk to the bank. Other examples like medical diagnosis or particular treatments that are recommended. People should have a right to know why this treatment and why not other treatments Employment decisions uh, why you were not invited to the interview that kind of would lend yep. you the dream job so it's for those type of like where AI is used increasingly in our societies in our economies that we want to be sure that the decisions are fair and not some kind of black box decisions that nobody knows why you didn't get the mortgage nobody knows why you were not invited to the next round of of interviews or nobody knows why the medical diagnosis that you're getting is the right diagnosis for you now you're talking about some examples
1: that are very relevant for for people's daily lives, for the economy, for, for people's welfare. Now, if you look at, let's say, one extreme use of AI is, for instance, kind of in the defense domain or in the military domain. I think we've also seen some some initiatives to come to an agreement about how to go about the use of AI in the military domain. Is there anything in the EU legislation that, that talks about the application of AI for defense systems, noting that obviously they they typically make use of I mean, applications developed for for civilian purposes,
2: but obviously then being used for for military applications as well. Well, the straightforward answer to this is no, because we are regulating here. This is an internal market regulation. This is very much about the free circulation of goods and services within the internal market, and also to avoid that member states would regulate in different ways, and therefore we would end up with a fragmented market. Whenever we use a legal base for the internal market, it does not concern. I mean, it's not within the competence of the European Commission to lay down rules at the same time for defense or military applications. This is outside of the scope of this regulation. But is that something that's, that is that is practically separable. Well, there are, of course, dual-use type mm-hmm. of applications yeah. where, I mean, d- kind of, d- it depends very much on the purpose for which the AI is, is developed. So it is not... It cannot be excluded that like ai that is regulated under the ai act is also ai that is used for military applications or or for decision making in in context of like defense but that's not not the other way around it's not the other way around so there needs to be a market i mean it's it's a market regulation so when it whenever in the european union it's about national security whether it's about defense whether it's about military this is not Included, we cannot regulate on this in the context of a market regulation.
1: now, I think if you look at let's say globally the the different pockets of initiatives around AI legislation or regulation, obviously the EU is I think been kind of leading for a very long time. I think this started already five, six, seven years ago uh, in terms of initial pieces of work that laid the foundation for this AI act. We now saw the executive order coming out of the White House. We've seen China coming up with their global AI initiative. How do you see this global landscape and how do you see the the dynamic between the three main instruments of global governance in regards to
2: AI? I think we're, we're going through a phase now where governments around the world are asking themselves like, so how should this be governed? and so that's it's normal and maybe the eu is a little bit advanced uh, compared to others because we 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 looked at it maybe also because we have a bit of a more of a tendency in the european union compared to other countries around the world to to regulate we're a little less kind of concerned about about regulation also because we have 27 member states in the european union and if say the eu doesn't regulate we will see our member state regulating and then we end up with a fragmented market. So that's also a factor that the EU always takes into account. I mean, I, I am convinced in a technology that is as transformational and disruptive as AI, it's inconceivable that you would say, okay, we'll leave it entirely to the private sector. Let's not regulate. I mean, uh, let's just kind of trust the private sector. They will do the right thing and then we'll, we'll just see and... But this is a sentiment happens. that you hear in some. I part mean, at of the this world. stage, I think I think a lot of kind of because the question is okay. Well, how do we do it? I mean, even if you regulate, and the question, or you want to regulate, well, how would you regulate? What is the right way to regulate? I mean, in the US, I mean, the CEOs of these companies are saying, "Please regulate us," and so everybody says, "Okay, let's regulate AI," and then the next question is how. And then half of the room falls silent and the other half says, look, well, maybe this way. And then yet other people say, well, that that way. So it's not that simple to do that. But that, I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take. I mean, AI moves at lightning speed. But the idea that we would not regulate. I mean, we regulate everything in our economy. We regulate like uh, the financial services. We regulate energy. We regulate pharma. We, we regulate kind of agriculture, foodstuff, food security, all of these things that somehow AI would not be regulated. Seems like odd inconceivable i mean i often say when people criticize look why are you regulating so well why are you not regulating i think the owners is on the ones that say look a technology even as disruptive as transformational as like ubiquitous as ai no we don't think it should be regulated is yeah. that that is something that certainly to a european makes makes little sense but so what what do you what do you hear? In the, uh, obviously, you're based in the US.
1: You you had your daily contacts with kind of the the big tech companies in in San Francisco in Silicon Valley. Do you feel and sense that there is a different perspective or a different well, appetite the, for for that regulation as as, as so far as the, the EU AI Act is supposed I mean, to? If go? you
2: ask the industry and particularly the leadership, the CEOs, they've made it abundantly clear they see a role for regulation. Mm-hmm. They see a role for the government. They see a role for public policy. But then again, how do you do it? If you go to the Congress, and and we know the political situation in the U.S., it is just complicated. I mean, it's very difficult to get things passed in Washington, D.C. But if you look more widely across the U.S., I mean, at the state level, I mean, 800 bills were introduced in the U.S. this year. I mean, in California, there's an AI bill, AI Act, uh, under discussion, under negotiation, even the city of San Francisco, where I live adopted AI rules. So it's not that because nothing happens or very little happens at the level of the federal government or the Congress. I mean, the federal government, of course, the executive order is a very important development, but, but the Congress has so far not enacted, at least not substantive rules, as far as AI is concerned, I think should not be taken as meaning that there isn't support or there isn't interest in regulation. It's a bit like the reverse what's happening in the European Union and we're regulating at EU level because we are concerned that if we do not regulate, the member states will regulate and then we get this handicap that the EU has had for many years of a fragmented market where it is just very difficult for companies in the European Union to grow because every time you expand to another market, the rules are different. And particularly in digital and in internet, it slows you down whilst your competitor kind of has the network effects and can move very quickly. We see a bit the risk now in the U.S. if the federal government doesn't preempt the states. The states will regulate. California will regulate. Washington state will regulate. Connecticut will regulate. There's going to be regulation in the U.S., but maybe not federal regulation, but state regulation. And it will be different from state to state. Obviously,
1: Australia is also a federated state, uh, and I think at some in, at, at some state levels in New South Wales, Victoria, we see also kind of the emerging stages of, of some specific AI policy or, or part of regulation. Now, having seen the EU process, uh, experiencing the the Ford American process, the US process, what I want to takeaways for you to share with your colleagues here in Australia today that, that you would suggest them to take up.
2: Well, I, I think it's important to look at trust. Right. Trust is really vital here. I mean, whenever we do surveys or we look at surveys in the European Union about AI, we see that about half of the population doesn't trust AI. And I think it's probably not much different here in Australia. So, and markets will not develop as well. And we need AI. We need AI in our societies. Mm-hmm. We are in the European Union. We're not going to succeed on our climate change ambitions. We're not going to succeed in making our energy systems like i mean more renewable driven i mean we're not going to make our roads safer we're not going to make our healthcare system like more effective and 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 say less costly unless we integrate ai we're not yeah. going to make our economies more productive we are we are an aging population in the european union if we are going to maintain or enhance our standard of living we need to include ai so I think that's a critical point. But then you need also to address the, the downsides of AI. So how can you maximize AI and how can you minimize the downsides of AI? And to do this without kind of some kind of framework in place, the European Union has done a lot of self-regulation in the past, but it has had mixed results. Right. And AI is such a fundamental transformational technology. The incentives of the private sector are not necessarily aligned with, say, what is in the interest of the public good. So we see a a role here for rulemaking. And if that helps to establish the trust that like half of our population do not have, this will help grow the market. Regulation can be supportive of innovation. It can be indispensable to innovation. It can be indispensable to reaping the benefits of AI for our societies and for our economy.
1: Jara, thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Alex Caples speaks to the Australian Federal Police Commander Helen Schneider about the My Pictures Matter initiative. This fascinating program, run by the AFP and Monash University, asks members of the public to provide childhood pictures. These are then used to create a safe and ethical database to train artificial intelligence that can then be used to combat child exploitation.
3: Hello everybody, my name is Alex Capels. I'm the Director of Cybertech and Security here at ASPE and I'm joined by Commander Helen Schneider of AFP's Crime Command. Today's podcast we really wanted to talk specifically about a very interesting project that AFP is running in conjunction with Monash University called My Pictures Matter. But I might just start Helen, thanks for coming on the podcast, really appreciate that. Would love to hear a little bit about Crime Command and what you cover there.
4: Oh, thanks for that. Yes, so um, we actually head up the Human Exploitation Command within Crime Command. So under my remit, uh, we're responsible for the Australian Senate counter child exploitation and we're also uh, responsible for the modern slavery, human trafficking aspects of our business. Uh, and so we're just an aspect of Crime Command. There are other crime types that feed into our Crime Command, such as economic crime, transnational crime and and we have a lot of strategy leads across the country through through the AFP in relation to drugs and money laundering and other aspects that impact the safety of Australians.
3: Fairly big remit. And mm-hmm. actually the remit that you discussed as well, the exploitation and modern slavery piece, is is large in and of itself. Yes. And both, I think, important and probably quite difficult for a number of people who are working in that space. It's tough material. It's It's a tough but important role. So... Thank you for that. And Definitely, for everybody in the AFP who is working on that. Tell me a little bit about the My Pictures Matter campaign. It's and really how it works. It's a little bit of an interesting take on perhaps the way that AFP might have gone about this kind of thing previously. It's an AI project aimed at saving people from child abuse, essentially.
4: That's right. So uh, essentially, My Pictures Matter, which you can read more about at My Pictures matter.org, is an initiative um, that was actually commenced through the AI for Law Enforcement and Community Safety Labs, which is a collaboration between Monash University and the Australian Federal Police, and that's a collaboration that's been going since 2019. And the aim of this particular initiative, um, My Pictures Matter, is to essentially look at training an AI tool that will help us combat child exploitation. And what's important about this project is that this AI software and tool will be uh, really looking at ethically sourcing a database to train it. Uh, It's a crowdsourcing world first in the sense that we are looking to train this software to be able to recognise children in images and videos that could be subject to child abuse Uh, and obviously that will enable us to hopefully intervene quicker uh, in terms of rescuing children, removing them from harm and identifying offenders. But I guess what's important to note here is we're talking about large amounts of data typically when we conduct these types of investigations and uh, this type of tool is about helping us get through reviewing and um, identifying and triaging this material in a quicker time than we can as humans. Um, and that also has a welfare benefit for our members because it means they're not going through as much of that abhor- abhorrent material as they normally would. But it certainly doesn't replace our investigators in any way.
3: Excellent. Thank you. So, I mean, very, very interesting in terms of we hear a lot about AI algorithms um, mm. not being, you, you, you know, potentially taking us down some quite dark paths. This is an example of an AI algorithm or, or training an AI system essentially to do, to be used as a force for good. That's right. So the challenge there, obviously, you're not taking humans out of that loop. There there obviously has to be some sort of qualitative decision making around what that material that bubbles up through an AI triage process looks like, but you are, I suppose, increasing that scale, that speed, uh, and essentially, as you say, making sure that uh, individuals who are charged with policing this kind of material aren't necessarily looking at as much of it they're looking at as, as much as they need to get the job done rather than having to deal with it in, on a really high-impact day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So just tell me then how you train an AI system in that regard.
4: So what we're looking to do, and this is our call-out to, to Australian adults to help us with the submission of pictures from their youth, is to create a data set uh, that we can use to train AI across And we're looking to teach this AI to recognise children within images and videos in whatever scenario they're in. The aim is then, when we're confident that the tool is trained to do that, is to couple it with a tool that can recognise sexualised content. And with those two aspects joined together, we hope that this is a tool that's going to help us identify child abuse material that we're seeing on the dark web or that we're seizing in large amounts of data from operations that we're conducting. And we're also hoping that it's a tool that's going to help us not only identify but triage probably more recent offending or more serious offending. So it's going to have a prioritisation element to us uh, to it to help us obviously um, combat child exploitation. For the layperson who perhaps is not particularly familiar with
3: AI, who uh, understands that there are algorithms broadly at the back of an AI system and that you need to train them in some way... Mm. What's the purpose, really, of having people essentially crowdsource that kind of material, which is really very innocuous photos of kids, mm. you know, photos from childhood of kids just being kids, whatever whatever family snapshots you might have. Mm. You're not looking for anything on the content side from people who might send in their photos. You're not looking for... Photos of kids in the bath, for example.
4: No. So I guess what we're looking for is just photographs of children um, or, you know, from your youth. Uh, It might have been a significant childhood event, a selfie or just an everyday childhood moment. Um, And the idea of that is to make sure we get not only a lot of um, data in terms of numbers of images but we want variety. So we want different skin types, we want different backgrounds, we want different eras depicted And the reason that's important for us is it means that the tool will be able to be trained across a real variety of data, which is going to actually increase its potential in terms of its search recognition capability. Uh, I think what's important for people to understand is that this is a tool that is something that they can really play a part in in terms of helping across the country combat child exploitation, not only domestically but internationally. And it's something that... um, we think is a lot more ethically sourced because we can actually know the the origin of the data set that's being used to train the AI. Whereas I think in a lot of other tools that is problematic and can create risk. We don't want people sending in images of of their children, for example, because children can't consent to be part of this research project. Um, We don't want to take images of children off the internet because... We can't assure, you know, be assured that that person consented. You know, we don't know the intellectual um, property rights of that person who put that image up there. Um, we don't even know that image that could be scraped generally off an internet is what we're seeing in the real world. So, I think it's really important to, you know, mitigate these issues around consent and things by ethically sourcing these databases, and that's part of making sure. The people who participate in this research project and initiative can be assured that it is ethical, it is accountable, um, and it'll obviously mean that that data set is a lot more, uh, I think, richer if we can get more images and that variety of images is going to be critical.
3: Yeah, thank you. Look, that's really... Particularly interesting, and I was going to ask that question, I'm sure, people who who are looking at AI and thinking, well, yep, understand the need to train it, but essentially why can't we just take that data? Mm. There's plenty of imagery out there. Why can't we just use that? Mm. I think that's incredibly important to understand both the ethical process that you're going through as part of this, but equally that that essentially that gives you really clear control over the data that you're putting in, that Mm. the AI algorithm is ingesting, uh, and therefore I suppose gives you the control in terms of understanding how you then marry that to some of that less savoury material, which is obviously happening in-house, to create the kind of triage that you're after.
4: Yeah. So I think if that tool can be trained across that variety of data, it can then be applied to where we – Really know there is this kind of risk, whether those dark websites or obviously data we seize as part of operations. So, obviously, that's what we say the amount of the amount and variety we get is going to be critical to its its full potential being reached as a as an AI tool to help us combat child exploitation.
3: That's, I mean, fascinating project. How do people then get involved?
4: So if you go onto the mypicturesmatter.org website, it steps through how we look after the data and what happens to the data, because I know that is important to the community to understand what, what will happen. You can upload your pictures through that website, but you do have to supply your informed consent. It does explain on the website that you can opt out of the research project at any time, And what I can advise the community is that kind of data is going to be managed and secured by Monash University. It'll only ever be used for that purpose of Mind Pictures Matter. But if you want more detail in relation to how that data will be handled and secured, it's all captured there on the website.
3: Data privacy, obviously very topical at the moment. People concerned about where their data goes, how it's used. We've seen conversations around that both in in the kind of public space and in the policy space. So, I think super important to understand exactly how data is managed and stored and what can be done with that, particularly when people are volunteering that information. So all of that is covered on the website as far yes. as working through exactly the process there and giving people a sense of security around what how those photos might then be used. That's right. Very important, I think, to bear in mind or to remind people that it is not photos of your own children; it is photos of you as a child. That's right, for yeah. exactly uh, those reasons. Interesting. Yes. I would encourage people to get involved in that project. I might go home and <laughs> sort through the old uh, phone or album uh, this evening and see what I might be able to send through. But I, I do think that it's a really fascinating process of crowdsourcing, but doing it in an ethical way. Mm and training AI in an ethical way. Are we likely to see more of that from AFP in the future? Are there different problems you can tackle in a similar way?
4: Yeah, I think it's certainly an area we're very forward-leaning in wanting to explore and do more in. I think currently for the AFP, we do use AI in a more limited way. We use it more to, I guess, transform data to help us with analysis and processes. And I guess an example of that is with language tools and, you know, looking at how we can combine human and AI tools to deal with large amounts of multilingual data and things like that. Uh, that's how we're currently using AI in that limited, I guess, kind of way. But, uh, you know, it's very much a part of our strategic intent. Our, our technology strategy really highlights that, you know, there's every aspect of our, our crime types we tackle involve technology. It's inescapable for us. Uh, And our blueprint is all about, you know, leveraging and uh, using technology and, you know, being responsive and responsible in terms of our digital innovation moving forward. So... You know, there's a lot of things we're doing in this space in terms of how do we make sure that we can assure the public that uh, we are looking at technology and emerging technologies like AI in a really responsible, ethical and accountable way. Um, We're working very closely with government and across government and partners, uh, foreign law enforcement partners. It's very obviously topical. It's almost a race, I think. You know, there's that race between you know, the emergence um, and development of of these kind of technologies and the need to have proper prudence and governance around them that meets community expectations. And we're well aware of those community expectations. So uh, I think for us, it's about, you know, having those due diligence processes in place. uh, And moving forward, we're looking to implement an AI oversight framework And uh, there's a couple of things we're looking at really ensuring we've got a multifaceted approach to responsible AI. So that's in terms of governance, making sure we're considering those legal, operational and ethical considerations when we're exploring tools that are coming out. It's about policies and frameworks. It's it's about training, making sure our workforce understand how to use any AI that we do implement in an appropriate way and recognising when it's present. Uh, It's about making sure we have technical leadership and excellence in that space so that we're making sure we're monitoring bias and risk and making sure compliance is in place. And finally, a big part of that is partnerships for us. And um, you know, there's a lot of work in that space that we're already doing and it's going to be a lot of complexities we need to, I guess, collaborate on in terms of harmonising governance internationally to make sure we're all responding to and using AI in a way that's accountable and acceptable to the Australian public
3: Hugely ongoing conversation, obviously. We've had the the AI consultation period under DISA. We also see those conversations playing out in terms of principles and frameworks that uh, put out either by social platforms, for example, or by governments, um, legislation coming down through the EU around AI. Lots of different and varied ways of looking at that uh, governance piece. But equally, I think, as you've pointed out, the complexities there of keeping pace Mm. with AI and it's been one of those things that's been about to change the world for five years and then suddenly within sort of five months it it actually is. Mm. There's a very um, left field and quite dark side of AI that attaches to some of the child exploitation material which you may or may not be comfortable to comment on but synthetic child abuse material. I'm not sure if you've come across that phrase. Essentially this is deep fakes Mm. but but in this incredibly sort of dark Mm. way. Is there a thinking on that? is that something that we have seen actually in an Australian context yet, or is that something that we see coming down the track?
4: Uh, it's I can't actually comment on specific cases, but what I can say is from a domestic and international perspective, we definitely see the use of AI in the production of child abuse material. Um, I guess the challenge for us is that you know, or the risk for us really is that can encourage and normalize the victimisation of our children in this space, but It does also challenge our victim identification specialists in terms of being able to identify who the true victim is and being able to remove them from harm. So that's certainly some of the challenges that we have there and it means for us we need to obviously employ a greater amount of capability and expertise to explore those kind of situations and and obviously look at who those victims might be. So that's the challenge, I think, Mm -hmm. of the use of those sorts of things. Uh, Obviously... Any kind of animated or synthesized um, kind of images are classified as child abuse material under our legislation. So, for us, it's it's something that we're going to have to continually look at our capabilities and how we employ them to combat it. But from an AI perspective, what I would say is yes, there is a we see increasingly criminal enterprises, you know, being early adopters of AI and emerging technologies. And that's not just in in the crime type that I'm currently responsible mm-hmm. for, but across the board. Uh, so I think uh, when we see their use of that technology, they're, they're not subject to the same, I guess, legal principles or democratic rights that we consider when we look to employ these types of technologies. So we need to really rise above that and look at how we employ these technologies. And the AFP is very pro-technology in that sense. you know we we are looking for those tools. We do have to be do the due diligence, as I said, but and be cautious, I think, of what some of those private sector offerings or private industry offerings might have because they're not considering I guess ethics and privacy like we we do. So there's a lot of, I think, risk we need to assess in ensuring that we're not only looking for AI tools that can combat the use of AI in, in criminality, but making sure that those tools come with a framework that ensures their ethical use and their transparency and accountability.
3: Interesting point there. And I think one that, that we've seen crop up recently is really around that idea that state-backed actors or state state actors, state-backed actors cyber criminals mm. not necessarily constrained by the same ideas of how how to use technology and nor in terms of creating developing building and deploying technology mm. uh building that really on any kind of ethical framework or any or having any real moral constraints around that and whether or not that at some point will be a problem for law enforcement for governments generally in terms of not having necessarily the, the same tool sets and not being able mm. to counter like with like. So, that's an evolving conversation and one that I think is really going to be quite telling, yep. uh, certainly in the next sort of 12 months as we think about how we impose principles and ethical frameworks on AI, both mm. its development and its deployment. So, thank you for that. Now, October is Cyber Awareness Month. It is. Um, So uh, I know AFP obviously gets involved, as does the ACSC and a whole range of other government agencies in this. There's a campaign at the moment. I wondered if you just in the last few moments of this wanted to take the opportunity to talk people through what the campaign is and perhaps some of the top tips that have come out of the Awareness Month.
4: Yeah, thanks for that. I think, um, obviously we see that, you know, a lot of these cyber scams are very impactful and well orchestrated and sophisticated these days. And a lot of emails that our members of the community get can really disguise what is phishing emails and things that uh, can lead to their identity fraud and fraud more generally. So this is an opportunity for us to really raise awareness and educate the public into in little things that they can do to help, I guess, protect themselves a bit more against those kind of cyber scams. Um, the theme is obviously be cyber wise, don't compromise, and uh, they're encouraging four tips um, to be more cyber wise, and that includes updating your devices regularly, uh, turning on multi factor authentication uh, opportunities on your devices, backing up your important files, and using pass phrases and password managers. So there's the to- four top tips mm-hmm. um, that we're we're encouraging people to a bit more cyber wise around
3: okay excellent and I think I mean all good tips all useful stuff I think also one of those things about if if you're if you've done that perhaps think about other people in your family who maybe don't do that I always look forward to syncing my mother's kindle at Christmas (laughs) Um, so those kinds of things I think are useful if you've got parents or others who Mm. perhaps less cyber savvy in your in your family then absolutely encourage people to kind of play that forward as well yeah I agree Helen, thank you so much. I really do appreciate the time you've, you've taken to come and talk about what is kind of a challenging and complex topic and really the fascinating way that AFP is looking to tackle some of these things as well as perhaps the emerging challenges that we see mm. coming down the track. It's certainly an evolving landscape. Um, I hope that we can at some point have you back on to talk about perhaps My Pictures Matter as the project continues and, and really, I guess, looking at success of, uh, of that AI training and how that's been deployed. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much.
0: That's all we have time for today. We're working hard here at Aspie and we still have an episode or two before Christmas and a special treat, an episode in the final week of the year. We'll see you again soon.